that the truth is not just a remote thing in ink on paper. The truth is the reality that can deliver us. That we can walk in. That we can walk in. If you walk in lies, in lies, you walk off of a cliff. But if you walk in the truth, you can see not no trials. That's certainly not the case. It certainly is. But you will see victory. 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 What does it look like when the victory happens and how is it implemented? How do we get to that victory? Now we know where this account is taking us. It is taking us to an empty tomb. It is taking us to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what takes place in the meantime? Before that, we see Jesus the man who is in already as we've seen in the narrative. What does Judas Iscariot say of Jesus when he comes back with the 30 pieces of silver. I betrayed the blood of an innocent man. From Judas Iscariot, innocent, innocent, innocent. And the reply of the Jewish leadership who gave him the 30 pieces of silver, probably out of the temple treasury, when he throws the 30 pieces back into the temple, and, he, and what do they say to him? That's your problem. Let, that's on you. That's on you. That's on you. Do they say, oh no, what are you talking about, Judas? He's not innocent. No! Because they know he is. Just as Judas knows he is. Let me tell you something, folks. The Jewish leadership isn't doing what they're doing because they do not understand who Jesus is. They are doing what they're doing because they do understand who Jesus is. And if He is who He says He is, and they know He is, the authentic Messiah, Son of David, He takes the throne and this One who has cleansed the temple twice will cleanse them out of their position. And they are defending their positions. They know he's innocent. They have already done their illegal trial where they couldn't even get two witnesses whom they had coached. They couldn't get any of these witnesses. Out of many, they couldn't get any of them to agree. The law of Moses demands at least two witnesses with the same testimony against an accused. And finally, out of frustration, the high priest says to him, Are you or are you not the Christ, the anointed Son of David, Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God? And Jesus says to him, It is as you say. You said it. He tore his clothing, blaspheming. He had heard never truer words. And then they spit on Jesus and disrespected him and struck him. And then they took him to Pilate. And we find Pilate on his judgment throne, unable to find one single accusation against Jesus. And the Jewish leadership brings all these witnesses. He, they bring them, and none of them again can agree. And Pilate, in frustration, he's sitting on the judgment throne, and he gets word from his wife. Do not have anything to do with this righteous, this just man. Because I have been tormented in dreams because of this 
just man. And then Pilate puts Jesus before the multitude. Do you want Jesus, who is called Christ, your own Messiah King, or do you want Barabbas, the renowned, despised criminal? Give us Barabbas. Release Barabbas. Well, what will I do with this Jesus, who is called Christ? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. And they bring out a basin, and He begins to wash His feet. His, excuse me, his hands. I'm washing my hands of the blood of this just man. For he has done nothing. Why should I crucify him? He has done nothing. Crucify him, crucify him. And he said, I'm washing my hands of the blood of this man. And what is the response of the multitude? Compare it to Judas Iscariot. Let his blood be on us and on us children you talk about moral depravity of the highest order they cannot find one single point of accusation but they want him crucified and they are willing to take the blood of this innocent man on them the very thing that drove Judas Iscariot to hang himself they willingly, gladly call upon themselves. As we noted last week, this has not worked out well for the Jewish people. It didn't work out well for that generation when the Romans came and tore down the city. Nor has it since. And so we pick up the narrative in chapter 27, verse 26, then he, Pilate, released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, they took a whip with like a cat of nine tails with pieces of hardware or bone chunks on the end, and they ripped the flesh off of Jesus' back. This is a man who is going to be crucified, who will have his back against a rough wooden cross. And they ripped the, that's the first thing they do. And indeed, that was standard for crucified men and women. Verse 27, Then the soldiers, the Roman soldiers of the governor, took Jesus to, into the praetorium, the inner area, and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Where did they get a scarlet robe? Well, that was the standard robe of a Roman officer. So they probably had a closet full of them. They put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And I, many, many years ago, it was my delight to read a wonderful, wonderful sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon in which he made the point, a crown of thorns... What, what, what is that communicating? Jesus is a king. They mean it. Oh, you're a king? Well, here's your crown. It was simply a torturous, mocking device. But what would did God mean by it? And Charles Haddon Spurgeon made the wonderful point. It made Jesus truly the second Adam, the king of the curse because he's going to bear all the curse upon himself that 
Adam had unleashed on the world by his sin. He is going to become the king of the curse and reverse the curse. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, a mocking scepter. This is the kind of king that you are. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And of course, they despised the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now when they came out, they found a man of Cyrene. Cyrene is a town to the uh, west of Israel in what is in North Africa on the Mediterranean, near the Mediterranean coast. Uh, in, as I recall, uh, in what is, would be modern-day Tunisia. But he's there for the Passover celebration. And when they come out, they just grab this fellow. And they force him to carry Jesus' cross. Why? Because Jesus' flesh has been ripped off of his back. He, they doubt his ability to carry his own cross, his cross to the mountain for his crucifixion. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, they, that is to say, place of a skull. By the way, Golgotha, that's from Aramaic. Where do we get the term Calvary? Well, it means the same thing, except it's the Greek word kephale. Uh, we have in our, uh, our medical terms, Anything that's cephalic has to do with the head. Well, that comes from the Greek word. By the, our, in our medical terms, come from Greek, not from Latin. Kephale means the skull, the place of the skull. Well, Calvary, they simply reversed the middle, vowel, middle uh, consonants because it was easier to say, and it became Calvary, the place of a skull. They gave him, verse 34, sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. My suspicion here, and I, what I understand is true, is they actually this was actually something that diminished the pain so it prolonged the process. And it was the standard thing that they would do with uh, crucified people. Verse 35 but he would not drink it. Why? He wasn't there to diminish the pain. Then they crucified him. They drove the nails into his hands and his feet and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet 1,000 years before by King David in Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Who's in charge of this process? Those men who ripped the flesh off of Jesus' back, those men who punched him in the face, they could push their fist into his face no further than they had divine permission. When they put the nails in his hand, by the way, the Greek word for hand is not what we use for hand. The Greek word for hand is from the tip of the finger to the elbow. That's, that's the word for hand. Ka'er is from here to here. 
they didn't drive the nails into the palms. They drove the nails into this hollow place in the wrist. The reason being, if they drove them in the palms, they would tear out. And so they drove them into this hollow place so there would be bones there to keep the hands in place. So they would stay on the cross and not be torn off by their own body weight. And so they drove the... But think about this. When they drove those nails, they did not break any bones. When they drove the nails, not only in his wrist, there's a lot of little bones there. When they drove, they overlapped his feet and drove a nail through the overlapped feet. Foot bones are very fragile. But God was directing the angle of the driving of the nail so that none of his bones were broken. When they beat his face, when they drove the nails, none of these tortures happen. We know of the other when he is crucified. He's got men on either side of him being crucified as well. Jesus, we know from the narrative of all the four Gospels, when he gives up his spirit, and Pilate gives the Roman soldiers orders, you need to get those bodies off the cross. You need to get them off those crosses because the Jewish Passover is about to begin and they don't want the normal three to four day crucifixion process while Passover is going on. It would, it would mess with their religious spirit, you know. Crucifying their Messiah is one thing, but you don't want to mess with their religious neat and tidiness. So you need, well, they broke the legs of the other two men crucified with Jesus. Why? Because then they would suffocate. They couldn't push themselves up to breathe. They would suffocate and die quickly. They came to Jesus. He had already died. He had released his spirit. So they did not break his legs. And so in the other gospel accounts that point to that, they point to that prophecy. Not one of his bones was broken. Despite the fact that it was extremely normal regular, ordinary, in the crucifixion process that many bones would be broken. And even when they drove the spearhead into his side and saw the blood to see that the blood was separating, that was the sure sign of death, the angle of the spearhead is just right. And it's going between, I can't shoot a deer through the rib cage without breaking a bone with a 30 caliber bullet. I'm sorry if that offends you. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. DJ's okay with that. Okay, and if DJ's okay with it, mander of tender conscience, we're okay. Okay. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him, and they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is the accusation. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, we know from other gospel accounts that the Jewish leaders read that and they didn't like it. Because it was an advertisement. It was the truth. And they went back to Pilate and said, we want to change you to change that. And every one of these people being crucified had the bill of, uh, you know, what they had done to deserve crucifixion over their heads. <coughs> we want you to say, to change it, to read, he said he is the king of the Jews. 
<coughs> and Pilate said, go pound sand. Well, that's my expression. He said, what I have written, I have written. You guys have gotten everything out of me you're going to get. Go away. And the truth stayed above the head of Jesus. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. Isaiah 53, they made his grave with the wicked. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. What do we know the primary, I mean, certainly it's true in the sense of destroying the building. He's God. He can create the entire, he created the entire universe. He's the creative agent of the Godhead. But he's talking about his own body. Because he is the temple of God. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, listen to this very carefully, he saved others. Stop. What did they just admit to? They just admitted to all of those miracles that Jesus did. They admitted to knowing of all of those things. We know from John's Gospel that they had already formed a conspiracy to kill Lazarus because Lazarus, the resurrected Lazarus, was too big a proof for Jesus. So we have to kill him. He saved others. What an admission. Himself, he cannot save. Oh, excuse me? Yes, he can. Why is he choosing not to? In order to serve the very people who are mocking him. What was the very first thing we know from other gospel accounts that Jesus spoke from the cross as Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, stood at the foot of his cross mocking him? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Wait a minute. Didn't they know who he was? Yes. Didn't they know that this was an act of off-the-scale wickedness? Yes. What don't they know? That they're not going to get away with it. They actually believe they will get away with it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. No, they won't. <laughs> they don't believe him now. They have an uncountable number of testaments to the reality of who he is. He trusted in God. Well, again, what an admission. He trusted in God. Let him, God, deliver him if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Let me ask you a question. Will God his Father deliver him? He will be raised out of that tomb. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. 
Now we know from other gospel accounts that one of those thieves later repented and asked for mercy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to that man, and a man who admits he deserves crucifixion, you will be with me this day in paradise. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. Jesus was crucified about 9 a.m. When it talks about the sixth hour, it means the sixth hour of daylight, sixth hour since the sun came up. So it's about noon. He's been on the cross about three hours. Now from the sixth hour to the ninth hour till about 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. In the middle of the day, darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, the close of his sixth hour on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, where all those other prophecies came from. They have cast lots from my garments. They've given me vinegar to drink. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Because the shortened version of Elijah is Eli. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. Now why would they think he was asking for Elijah? Because Elijah, the very last prophecy of the Old Testament, the Malachi is before the great and day of the Lord, Elijah, who never died, was taken up into heaven in a chariot, will come. Immediately one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We know from other gospel accounts, what did he cry out? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he released his spirit into the hands of the Father. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the temple, where they are, have, are just finishing the examining of the Passover lambs, because Passover is about to begin with sundown. This, we say veil, this two and a half to three inch thick tapestry was torn from top, meaning it's an act of God, from top to bottom, and <laughs> comes apart. And these priests who know the penalty for stepping into, the, into that holy of holies is death. And suddenly the tapestry is torn in two and parts and they can see into the Holy of Holies. This is the death sentence. And Why am I not dying? Because Jesus just made a welcome for you into that presence of God. And we know from the book of Acts that a great number of priests believed. 
Word got around. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. No, not that we know of. Uh, Again, verse 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split. The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Fallen asleep is just a euphemism for physically, physical death. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into this holy city and appeared to many. Let me tell you, folks, there was no lack of evidence that Jesus had, was who He claimed to be and had accomplished what He purposed to accomplish. Verse 51, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly. A Roman centurion feared greatly. Okay, that those two Expressions don't go together normally, in a sense. But here is a Roman centurion. By the way, of all the people in the entire Mediterranean world, the most respected occupation was the Roman centurion. Every one of these people was, were up from the private, the low class, had ascended to that position, and they were typically in that position for many, many years. They were the core of the Roman army. The officer class were the sons of the wealthy and powerful. And they came and went. The centurions were the men. And centurion meant they typically were a commander over a hundred. That's where the term centurion comes from. They were the most respected men in the Roman Mediterranean culture. And the centurion said, they feared greatly, and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. I've, I've superintended many, many, many crucifixions. I haven't seen earthquakes. I haven't seen darkness over the event. I haven't seen earthquakes. I haven't seen all of these things, sort of things happening. I'm making a judgment call here. This was the Son of God! And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, were there looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joses. Well, who is this? This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Well, why is she called here the mother of James and Joses? Because the apostles were very careful, as was Mary, in not putting her in a special position with Jesus. Remember earlier in Matthew 15, 13, 55, Jesus is in Nazareth, and the people of Nazareth are amazed. I mean, this is towards the close of his ministry, and they are amazed by what they've heard about him, and all these people have come to Nazareth. He has this big gathering on him, and they say, 
when he had come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom? We know this guy. He grew up here. And, this, and the, where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? As they understood, Joseph the carpenter was his father. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joses, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? He's just a regular old guy. He's from Nazareth. He can't be special. Wrong. <laughs> but Mary is the... Who were her, who were her sons by Joseph? James, Joses, Simon, Judas, and there were several sisters. We're not given the number. And so she's called here the mother of James and Joses and the mother of Zebedee's sons, and her name was Salome, we know from other gospel accounts. And they were cousins of Jesus. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He immediately wrapped it there. Now we know from the Gospel of John account, he had the help of uh, Nicodemus. But they wrapped the body immediately, and then we know from John's Gospel that they took the, and it was stated here, they took Jesus' body to the tomb that Joseph had, had carved out for himself. And they then wrapped the more linen around Jesus and put an, a, a fortune's worth of, of spices in the folds of the linen wrapping. But all that's recorded here is that the women watched Joseph wrap, immediately wrap a linen cloth around him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary, meaning Jesus' mother, sitting opposite the tomb. We're going to call a halt here to our pursuit of the narrative and pick up next week with verse 62 with the preparation for the resurrection of our Lord and how God will make a wonderful testimony over the <laughs> objections of the Jewish leadership. In fact, they will play into it. They will create the testimony by what they demand. And uh, w do we have a God who's good at what he does? We do. Our Lord, we are so thankful. This is a, a lengthy narrative of how day by day and with each passing moment strength we find to meet our trials here. You supplied to your son the strength that he needed to meet the trial that was totally unearned. He was enduring this trial for no other reason 
except to provide to us deliverance from the guilt of our sins before the holy God. He makes it possible by the suffering that he endures for us to be forgiven. And as we read this, that ought always to be at the forefront of our minds. He took this. He could have called, as he says in the garden when he's arrested, I can call 12 legions of angels. I can call 72,000 angels. He could have called them while he was on the cross. He chose not to, that he might carry out the Father's will and our deliverance. We give you thanks for this. Good, merciful, kind, loving God. Amen.